0: we have been using this imagery or this metaphor or this idea that Paul presents in Galatians of a household, right? That's been kind of our basic metaphor for the last few weeks because Paul argues that, uh, that we are part of the household of faith and not just of the family of Abraham, right? This man who God came to and gave great promises and built the nation of Israel and even the sending of Jesus upon those promises, but actually in some significant way a part of God's family. Okay. Why, uh, what's significant about this and what he's seeking to do in this passage is warn those in the church of Galatia that they're already in the family and that even though there are those who trouble them and say, no, 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 you're not really a part of the family of faith unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses. You're not really part of the family of faith unless you um, become Jewish like us and keep our law and customs. Basically, what these people have argued to the Galatians is, look, you're, you're in the home. You're in the house. But you're like a servant in the house. You're part of the household, but you're not in the family. You need to step in. You need to become part of the family. You're almost there, but not quite. First, you must become like us. And Paul has been arguing for chapter upon chapter, all the way since chapter 2 through chapter 3, up to the end here of chapter 4, that the story, the narrative the Bible tells is that all people come to the family of faith by faith. And that all people come to the family of faith through promise. And that the evidence of a relationship with God is the giving of his Holy Spirit. And you Gentiles, you non-Jewish people, you already have it in Christ. Okay? If you are in Christ, he says, you are in the family. We need to keep that all in mind because here's a challenge that we face when we read our Bibles and when we study it together. We study it generally paragraph by paragraph here in this church. And we do that because I think that's the best way to study the Bible as a congregation. But it's really easy to deal with a particular passage in isolation. Forget what came before, not remember what comes after. Okay? And that's especially important in Galatians because if you were to just crack open your Bible with very little knowledge of the letter of Galatians and read this passage, you would be lost. Okay. What Paul is going to do here is the culminating illustration of everything that he said before. What Paul seeks to do here is conclude his case that the Bible and God's will is on his side in his understanding the issue. But the way that he seeks to do so is a little bit mystifying. And probably the best way to demonstrate that is to read it together. Let's open our Bibles to Galatians 4 and read, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And let's finish here with chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Father, there are things to chew on in this passage. At first reading, it's confusing. but there are also very simple and profound truths here for us this morning. I pray that you would guide us through these things, that you would clarify Paul's point in our mind, and that you would use it to help us discern and rejoice in our place in your family as we were adopted by God the Father, as we were placed in Christ the Son, as we received the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you didn't catch it, here's why this passage is difficult. It's because the way that Paul reads the biblical stories that he references here. And if, you're, if, if it didn't stand out to you because he doesn't quote a lot of verses and he covers quite a few chapters, what he's talking about here is Abraham and his son Isaac and Abraham and his son Ishmael through Hagar but the way that he goes about reading this passage strikes us as being esoteric, mysterious, tea-leave, twisting. In fact, he uses the word here allegorical. Now, there are certain books, certain movies, certain pieces of art that are intentionally an allegory. Think of Pilgrim's Progress, okay? The characters in Pilgrim's Progress represent ideas directly. This character to this idea, this event to this idea. It is like Jesus' parables, okay? Paul doesn't believe that Galatians is merely allegory, that there is no Abraham, that there is no Isaac, that there was no Hagar, but they are just spiritual realities and symbols. He doesn't believe that. But what's striking here is the way that he handles the passage is clearly different than even how he's handled it in Galatians so far. Remember what Paul says just a chapter earlier when he says, for God's promise was not given to the seeds being many, but the seed being one, which is Christ. Okay, what does he do there? He takes a statement that God makes as a promise, and he helps us to understand grammatically what's meant. Not plural, but singular. In the same way, earlier in the chapter, he says, yes, Abraham was circumcised, but he was counted as righteous prior to that circumcision. What does he do there? Chronology. He says, in the timeline, God saved Abraham first, and then came circumcision. So you cannot say circumcision is necessary for salvation. Okay? In other words, the way that Paul reads the Bible and the way that he exemplifies Bible reading for us is to read it grammatically, historically, logically. And then we hit this, and he says, but you could read this allegorically, and we go, wait. In fact, there was a significant movement in the early church in the first few centuries to read the Old Testament in just this way as allegorically. Forget about the real Abraham. Forget about the real Israel. Forget about the real prophet Elijah. These things are symbolic, and sometimes it got crazy out of hand. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham goes after his nephew Lot with 314 servants, okay, all armed men. Augustine, an amazing theologian and pastor, said that 314, when written alphabetically, because the... Um, because the Greek language didn't have a numeric system and so like Hebrew, you wrote the numbers as letters. He said, it's the first three letters of Jesus' name. Boom. Abraham had victory through the 314, which is Jesus Christ. And you go, wait a minute. What does that have to do with the book that Moses wrote and why he wrote it? Right? It seems disconnected and removed from what we now call authorial intent, the purpose of the person who wrote it. Now, I don't know about you, but that handling of the scriptures seems bad for two reasons. One, because what if you wrote an article about famine in India, and somebody read it and said, well, clearly, this is about the fact that there is a lack of education. The famine is a hunger of the mind, right? You'd go, hey, wait a minute. That's not playing fair. That's not what I meant. And so it seems like a weird way to read, and second, what happens when you mingle allegorical readings that are subjective and see what you want to see and the authority of God's word, right? Now you take your ideas, and as long as you can creatively twist the scriptures into that mold, your ideas become God's ideas, and you say, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Is that what Paul is doing here? No. No. In fact, the way he uses the word allegorically here when he says these things may be understood allegorically, he's probably dealing with pre-existing content in the argument. Here's what I would suggest to you. I would suggest to you that this illustration is his opponent's illustration, and he turns it on its head. I would suggest to you, here's what happens. The Gentiles uh, in Galatia have these new leaders and teachers and they come in and they say right now you are like Ishmael you're real close you're living in the tents of Abraham but the descendants of Israel are not all or excuse me the descendants of Abraham are not all Israel only one was the son of promise and he was circumcised and his children were circumcised and eventually we get to the law of Moses and so you don't want to be an outsider anymore like Ishmael You want to be an insider like Isaac. We also know that by nature, the uh, authorities who were preaching these things made a big deal out of Mount Sinai. Did you hear it referenced here in Galatians? Mount Sinai was the place where Moses ascends and receives the law, and God makes his covenant with the people of Israel. We know that those in Galatians said, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, and that begins at Sinai. In fact, you may remember one of Paul's arguments so far is, yeah, but that's 400 years after Abraham. Abraham didn't keep the law of Moses because Moses wasn't in existence. And neither was the law. The law was later. And he goes on to say, and the law was temporary. Okay? What I would suggest to you is Paul takes this idea and goes, let me suggest an alternate reading. And I would suggest to you also that his alternate reading pays closer attention to the details of the passage and draws some things out. I'll show you what I mean. Go back again to verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So what I'm suggesting to you is the audience had been exposed to this idea already and basically it's, here's Hagar, she's an Egyptian. And she has a son who thinks he's part of the family of Abraham. In fact, as we saw, he is a son according to the flesh. They come up with this plan. And he says, but you need to be like Isaac. You need to follow in the footsteps of the Jews. And he says, that's true. There was a son of the slave who was born, and he says here, according to the flesh, verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. He says, you've picked the right son, but the wrong reasons what is the difference between ishmael and isaac in the book of genesis it's that ishmael was a desire by abraham and sarah to bring about god's promises their own in their own way in their own power in their own flesh with their own plans and because sarah was barren instead of waiting for god to give them a son they said let's not wait any longer and let's make one They, uh, Ishmael really is a bloodline genetic son of Abraham. In fact, he is exactly as much a bloodline genetic son as Isaac. Half of his DNA is Abraham's. No difference there. Okay. And if the side went, and I'm getting a little hypothetical here, but if the side went, yeah, but Isaac was circumcised, so was Ishmael. Go back and read the story. That's not where the difference lies. And when Paul points out, it says, no, 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 through Isaac shall the seed be called, through Isaac shall be the children. It wasn't circumcision that set them apart. It wasn't blood. It wasn't according to the flesh. It was that Isaac was the son of promise. What is the difference between Isaac and Ishmael? Isaac is a miracle baby who only exists because God promised to do the miraculous and then did it. In other words, what Paul is suggesting here is what makes one a true descendant of Israel is not blood and lineage, but its miraculous birth. It's according to the promise and not according to the flesh, as he says here. It's according to the power of God and not according to our own work. It's built on the things that God has done and not on the things that we must do. Okay? He makes that distinction. And so he makes this clarification, and then he says in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants, okay? Now he ties it to another major biblical theme, which is the theme of covenants. And let me just remind you that a covenant is contract-like in that there are stipulations, okay? So, You make a contract with somebody to do work at your house and you say, I will give you a certain amount of money for a certain amount of work that will be done in a certain amount of time, hopefully. That's a contract. A covenant is like that. But it's not about an exchange of goods or services. It's about an exchange of loyalty. The language of the old covenant, the language that God uses when he makes Israel in relationship with him is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the Mosaic Law, the stipulations of here's how to worship, here's how to build the tabernacle, here's what to eat and what not to eat, here's how to live in the midst of the other nations, here's how to go about war, all of that is the stipulations of what it looks like to be those people. But as Paul points out here, there are two covenants. That one we now call the Old Covenant. In fact, have you ever opened your Bible and wondered why we have the Old Testament and the New Testament? testament is just an old word that's that king james used for this word covenant okay it's recognizing the division between something god was doing and something god is doing now and this is not language that christians have imposed on the jews this was the expectation of the jews themselves jeremiah in jeremiah 31 31 god says behold i'm going to make a new covenant not like the covenant i made with your fathers the old covenant But in this one, I will put the law not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of your heart. And then you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And so see what he's doing here. He takes a glimpse, just a photo of Abraham's family, and then he spins it way over history, and he says in the same way that there is Ishmael, who's according to the flesh, and Isaac, who's according to the promise, there are also two covenants. And then he does the most acrobatic of maneuvers. Look at what he says. He says, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. He does three things here, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated, but I think it's pretty easy to clear up. The first thing I want you to notice is he says, the first covenant begins with Sinai. No disagreement there. Like I told you, Deuteronomy... Or excuse me, Exodus, uh, chapter 10. That's the establishment of the covenant. I have brought you out of Egypt so that you will be my people. Here are the ten commandments. Let's enter into covenant. Moses takes the blood and he sprinkles it over the people. All of that stuff is the beginning of the covenant, and it happens where Mount Sinai. Okay, that's part one. He says. Second, he says bearing children for slavery. Now that's a place where the Jews would go. Wait a minute. What do you mean slavery? But what Paul has been arguing in this chapter so far is that the law served the purpose of a pedagogue, a nanny, that it was temporary until the maturation, until the growth and fulfillment of God's promises. Again, I suggested to you, think of a child who is orphaned by rich parents. He doesn't have the wealth at his disposal, but he's set under a guardian. Effectively, Paul has argued that was the purpose of the law. It was a placeholder that moved towards Messiah and was fulfilled in Messiah and now is no longer necessary in the same way. That's the slavery that he's concerned about. It's the slavery of being a child under the authority of a babysitter. Now, like I said, the Old Testament itself expresses that that old covenant was temporary and that for them to truly be the people of God, God was going to have to do something. What was he going to have to do? Fulfill the promise. In other words, like Abraham waited 25 years till the birth of Isaac, Israel waited hundreds of years for the birth of Jesus. And that's by design. That's not allegorical. That is what we call typological. Meaning that God in history repeats the pattern so that people go, hey, this is like that. So we go, hey, this is the fingerprints of God. Okay, Isaac, as we saw in Genesis 22, acts out the role of sacrifice, a lamb to the slaughter, but he was spared. Why? Because there was a ram caught in the thicket? No, because the true sacrifice was not going to be Abraham's son, but God's son. Now, here's the third move he makes. First, Sinai is about the old covenant, not the new. Second, the old covenant and Sinai was about slavery and not freedom, or if you want to think of it, immaturity and ma- not maturity. It was temporary. And then third, Mount Sinai is Hagar. And that's the place where we go, wait, what? Because remember, Hagar has been dead for hundreds of years at this point, And she is cast out of Abraham's family and goes off two things, though, are really significant. One, where does Hagar's story end? It ends in Arabia, okay? In other words, Mount Sinai is not in the promised land, and it never was. It didn't just, you know, hike up its skirts and march over to the Sinai Peninsula. Israel went through Sinai. They didn't stay there. The promised land was beyond Sinai, and Sinai was a pit stop and a vital one but it wasn't the destination. In other words, he makes the provocative comparison here that Sinai was on the way to the promise in the same way that Hagar and Ishmael were. Now, I don't think we should read this as being Sinai was a mistake because let me remind you that this was not Moses' plan where he goes, I know how we'll fix everything and then he gives the covenant. God redeems them out of Egypt. God imparts the covenant but it's only along the way and he says in the same way that Hagar ended up in Arabia we left Sinai in Arabia too now I want you to notice something about this passage we have two sons we have two covenants as we'll see in a moment we have two Jerusalems and in the middle we have all by itself one mountain Mount Sinai where's the other mountain what has to be, to fit Paul's logic, a mountain within the promised land. It's the mountain that the Bible constantly calls Mount Zion. And the truth is, in the Old Testament, Mount Zion eclipses the significance of Mount Sinai. Zion was the destination. Okay? And I would say that makes the most sense because Mount Zion is also known as what? Jerusalem. And that's where he goes next. But he basically says... Maybe it's time to leave behind the mountain of the past for the mountain of the future. Maybe it's time to stop looking back and start looking forward. And this is an argument that the New Testament regularly makes about what happened with Jesus. And it's super weird that this has become so culturally significant that even in our modern dating system, past from future is divided by what? Christ. Before Christ, or say before common area, it's still Jesus that's the date mark, the date line, right? And then Anno Domini, AD, the year of our Lord. In the same way, here, we are not a people who look back, but who look forward to the coming of Jesus. We live in what the New Testament calls the last days, not because the world is guaranteed to end on Thursday, but because the dawning of the end. Right? Because we've crossed the threshold of time and are closer now to salvation than we were. Right? These are the ideas that are flowing through Paul's brain as he walks through this, but here is the point that he is making. He's saying here, he's asking the Jews, even the offending parties, he's saying, which is more like my presentation of the gospel. And here's his defining point. Notice what he says here. He says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Here is the problem of those who say to these Gentiles, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. There are a whole lot of people who do that in Jerusalem, and they are not the children of God. Right? Right? Here is the tension. Here is the problem. If it's not about the child of promise and the fulfillment of the work of God, why did Jesus come? If Jews are God's people because they're circumcised and keep the law of Moses, then why does Peter call them in the book of Acts chapter 2 to repent and believe in the gospel? And then you will receive the Holy Spirit. You see, these Uh, opponents identify with Jerusalem but that Jerusalem is if you'll forgive me the language a pagan Jerusalem it's Jerusalem that didn't receive the promise of God but rejected the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the great message of the gospel is that they can receive it now they can repent and believe but what is it then that draws the demarcation between God's people and not God's people between right in the household of God, but not as child. It is promise, fulfillment, faith, spirit. The same things that Paul has been emphasizing for the last few chapters. Jerusalem, he reminds the opponents, is still in slavery with its children. Okay. Now, In contrast, verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Now, this is very close reading and it's been a long, long time since we were in Galatians chapter 1. But Paul does everything he can to distance himself from the city Jerusalem in chapter 1. He says, I didn't start in Jerusalem. I went out into Arabia and I had a vision. And even when I did visit Jerusalem, I only was there for a couple of things and I just saw Peter, right? He's been making this distance the whole time and it's because the argument of the other side is we represent Jerusalem. And he says, the only Jerusalem that matters right now on God's time scale is the heavenly Jerusalem, which either means the true Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem, or the future Jerusalem. Remember how the book of Revelation ends and I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven? Either way, he's trying to point out that there is a continuity discontinuity plot problem in the other side. That either God has accomplished something that is necessary in Jesus Christ and therefore that is the defining trait or it was unnecessary and we had everything that God had planned for us in circumcision and the law of Moses. In other words, he is saying, you troublers have more in common with these spirit-filled Gentiles than with the Jews who have rejected Jesus. And we should all say, obviously. And it's something we should be careful of as Christians as well. I believe that God has future plans for the nation of Israel. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. However, the nation of Israel today is still this Jerusalem in slavery. And we should feel more resonance with Palestinian Christians who have received the Messiah of the Jews than the Jews who continue to reject him. Okay? That's a touch point with what Paul is talking about here. Now, verse 27 He says, Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother for it is written. And he quotes here from the book of Isaiah. And I want you to notice what it says. It says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of one who has a husband. Okay. Now, here is another stitch in Paul's argument. He turns to Isaiah 54. So here's what's happening in Isaiah 54. Israel has been sacked. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The Jewish people have been deported to Babylon. They are in exile. Isaiah is writing to them in exile, and he identifies that exile as being as if they are an abandoned wife and a wife without children. So what does he say? He says, effectively, the same thing God did for Abraham, giving birth to a barren woman, God is going to do for Israel. And again, this isn't his philosophy. This isn't his logic. He says, this is what Isaiah told us would happen. But how is it that exile is going to end and salvation is going to begin? Is it going to be because Israel gets back in the land and starts having babies? No, she's barren it's going to be the miraculous provision of children. And if you go on and you read the chapters that follow in Isaiah, there's a surprise ending. Those children just don't come from Israel. They come from the ends of the earth. They come from all over. And they're all miraculous. Okay. And so here he says, God is consistent in his dealing. He made the family of faith through promise. Faith, miraculous provision in the Spirit. And he's doing the same today. Okay. Now what does he say in verse twenty eight? Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Sometimes this is easy for us, easier for us non Jewish people, to get. We weren't born in the household, so we'd never just assume we're the kid. I can't remember what book it is but this was a classic theme of like 19th century literature think of like dickens and such where somebody is suspicious that they're the true heir and love child even though they're just a lowly servant in the household right but he says here you are gentiles and jews who have received jesus the children of promise why because it's built on the miraculous provision of God. Not Isaac, a birth of a child, but Jesus, the birth of a child. Because it's received through faith in God keeping his word, you know, the, um, what's the language of Exodus? What God has done with an outstretched arm in his strength, not in ours. Okay. And then as he's made the point over and over again, is tied to the reception of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant made in our hearts God doing what we could not do in our own by giving us his own divine nature, right? This big miraculous thing that God did in Jesus, that's what makes you a child. And so it's the Spirit, he said last chapter, crying out, Abba, Father, in our hearts that helps us to know that we are the children of God, okay? Verse 29, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh Persecuted him, who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Now you may not remember this story very well, but after Isaac is born, remember, Ishmael is a teenager at this point before Isaac shows up on the scene, and you can imagine that he is the center of attention. Not only is he the child of promise, but he's Sarah and Abraham's shared child.- 25 years in the making, right? And so it says that there's an occasion where Ishmael was, and your translation probably says laughing at Isaac. Maybe we should translate it mocking. Whatever it is, it upsets Sarah, and Sarah confronts Abraham and says, this can't go on. You cannot allow these boys to grow up together as if they are equals. Okay. Paul's point here is the same thing is happening today. And here, I don't believe he's worried about the troublers, the Jews who are saying, you need to become like us. I think he's worried about non-Christian Jews. Everywhere Paul goes, proclaiming the message of salvation, who is it who picks up stones to stone him? Who is it who stirs up insurrection to drive him out of town? It's the people of God. It is the same Jews who killed Jesus. Okay? That is what he's pointing out here. He's saying that's playing out today And what he's doing by bringing this up now is questioning the understanding of the troublers. Which team are you on? Which side are you playing with? We're already being persecuted for this. As he's going to say later, he says, if I still promote circumcision, then why do I keep getting, you know, attacked? He doesn't. And that's the point. That's part of the message of repentance to the Jews is to forsake trusting in themselves as keepers of the laws and receive the miraculous provision of jesus christ okay and then he says finally here verse 30 but what does the scripture say cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman now to be clear here that is not the cruel advice of abraham who's like just get rid of the boy he loves ishmael this is god's advice and he goes on and he says nevertheless i'm going to bless ishmael okay So this is not an orphaning of Ishmael. It's a recognition that only one of the children is the child of promise. This only works one way. And one of the roughest parts about the book of Genesis is that there's this constant split of children, right? And so it's not Isaac and Ishmael, it's also Esau and Jacob. And in every place, I tell you with confidence, those who are on the outside can come in, and they do not. But he says here, he brings this up. Why? Because he effectively says, there's an inside and an outside. And it's not these, your Gentile brothers and sisters, who are on the outside. He says, verse 31, So then, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Therefore, he says in chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Again, he says, "To believe and to heed the teachings of these troublers would to lead them backwards instead of forwards, to immaturity instead of maturity." Here's the thing. Paul is good with the law of Moses in many ways. In fact, just after this, uh, in chapter five, look at what he says in verse 13. For you recalled to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. What does he say? Christians, keep the law. Love one another. He has no problem quoting the Old Testament and leading us in its ways. Those are not the issues here, right? It is the difference between essay and bene essay. And I'm not talking about essay about what you might have heard floating around your high school. I'm talking Latin. Essay is what is essential in nature. Bene esay, essay is what is beneficial to health. Okay? It's a Latin play on words. Paul's only concern is that we would mistake the essay. He knows that the law is bene esse. And I think we can update this today. All the trappings of what it means to be a church, of our traditions, of the songs that we sing, and the way that this church building looks, and the way that we enculturate Christianity are fine. They're good for health. When Paul says here, what makes you a Christian is not circumcision in the law, we could add what makes you a Christian is not that you go to church or not that you stand and raise your hands during worship, or not that you serve as a deacon, or a thousand other things. That doesn't make those things bad things, unless we think they're the thing. And then suddenly they're really, really bad. Paul even circumcises a young boy, I mean, in his 20s, named Timothy. And he has no problem with that. And yet he's going to go on here and he says, you Galatians, if you're circumcised, you forsake Jesus. Why? Because he circumcises Timothy for convenience so he can bring him into the synagogue as a Jew who should have been circumcised anyways without causing a hassle. But that circumcision did not make Timothy a Christian. Okay. That's the concern. When we mistake the bene essay, the things that are good for health, for the essay, the thing that is, makes its very nature, we deny the true essay. We deny what the very nature is. In other words, Paul agrees here that in the household of God, there are those who are family and there are those who are just in the house, servants and slaves. He agrees. Where he disagrees is how you know the difference. And this should be a word of caution for us. We need to recognize that those who live in God's house are not necessarily his children. We need to recognize that the external marks of what it means to be a Christian are just that, merely external. And they're valuable for following Christ, but they do not make one a Christian. I know it's trite, and you've probably heard other preachers saying it, but just because you stand in a garage doesn't make you a car. Okay? That's the idea here. Paul wants us to understand what makes a Christian and what is it? It is that we are the children of promise. Okay? That we have received the I wills of God's plan. I will provide a savior. I will send my son Jesus Christ. I will die on a cross for your sins. I will offer you forgiveness in his blood. That we are the children of promise. That we are, like Abraham was, the children of faith that we respond to those promises and say, yes, I need that. I receive that fact that Jesus died in my place. And I need that forgiveness. And I will trust in that for my salvation. And then the reception of the Spirit. Here's one way to think about it. The only way to become a Christian is miraculously. not by proximity. We can be, and Jesus says this even in his ministry, you are close to the kingdom of heaven. It's not the same thing as being one of its citizens. But what is the difference? Is the difference in our behavior or in our creed? Is the difference in... Our, uh, you know, our association with one church or another church is the difference in um, you know, the trappings of Christianity or, or even the good things that we do, like reading the Bible or retreating to prayer or these types of things. No. Because the only way to become a child of God is through the action of God. The problem and the reason why Paul treats this like a heresy that will lead not to heaven but to hell is because the Jews are mistaking that essay, right? They're taking the bene essay and they're saying, but the law is good. It was written by God. And he's like, yes, but it is not the law that makes you a Christian. And they're saying, but, uh, you know, these are the markings. These are the trappings. And he says, fine, but they do not make you part of the children of God. I want to ask you seriously and significantly this morning. Is it possible you are near the kingdom of heaven and have not yet entered it? What is it that make you makes you God's child? Is it that you're the child of your mom and dad who grew up in church? Is it that you're a Christian? Because well, we can't even say this anymore, but we used to say that Christianity is as American as apple pie. What is it that makes you a Christian? If it is not, I have heard the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, and I have received it in faith and am trusting in it for my salvation, then it hasn't happened. And for those of us who are Christians, let's remember where the door is. Let's not purvey or express a message that there's any other way to enter or that there's any other requirement to enter. I love this summary of the book of Galatians. Paul's concern in Galatians is Jesus and. But as soon as you add something to that list and you make it as essential as what Jesus has done, you decrease the significance and the... um, You decrease the significance and the full provision of Jesus. Either Jesus did it all or he didn't. And as soon as we say, yes, be a Christian and be circumcised. Yes, be a Christian and be a part of this right and proper church. Yes, be a Christian and behave like me, think like me, talk like me, vote like me. As soon as we do any of those things, we lose the essential characteristic. That's Paul's concern. And let me remind you that he's writing here to people he knows have received the Spirit and are believers. He's not saying, are you really inside? He's saying, stay inside. Don't go out of the family. Don't surrender your sonship to become a slave in the household of God. Let me read it to you again. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people who proclaim on our behalf and to a watching world, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We also want to be a people, Lord, who unify with great diversity and difference, with different backgrounds and cultures and languages and nationalities, but with the true commonality that we are bought by the blood of Christ, that we are united because he has given us the same spirit, because we have believed in the same promise that was offered to the whole world by the same God. And I just pray, Lord, very tenderly this morning that you'd help us to clear out the clutter. That we would know that what is essential in our relationship with God is what you have promised and then accomplished. That we would stand firm on that foundation. And even as we seek to live it out or to partner with others who do or to enculturate it, and let it reflect and manifest in every area of our life. As we live out being the people of God, let us not think that we are naturalized citizens who behaved the right way and therefore became your people. Let us keep the horse before the cart, that you brought us out of Egypt, so we are your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.